Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's September 26, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. And of course, everybody is waiting for, I don't know, we we don't have a name for Thursday. The president meets with Rod Rosenstein. And of course, uh, the, the, the phrase all eyes are on is overused and I think rather trite, but I think basically all eyes are going to be on that Senate hearing room when the Senate Judiciary Committee hears from uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh and and his accuser. Joining me today to give a preview, Adam White, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and a regular contributor to the Weekly Standard. Um, and Adam, you have a piece up today, the Democrats Flight 93 nomination, and you talk about the burden of proof. So let's just let's talk about um, what uh, what you think is going to happen tomorrow. We now know that uh, the other accuser, uh, Ms. Ramirez, is offering to testify. It seems unlikely that she will uh, testify. So let's just talk about your your piece. Uh, What do you mean when you say the Democrats Flight 93 nomination? Well, thanks, Charlie. And I do want to say at the outset, you're right. Between the Rosenstein meeting on Thursday, the Kavanaugh hearing, I feel like we're reaching the constitutional singularity where everything will be decided all at once, maybe in the same room. Uh, But uh, in terms of the hearing uh, tomorrow, I mean, just let me say at the outset, I was invited and, and gladly testified in favor of Judge Kavanaugh's nomination at the hearings, testified in favor of him, especially based on his approach to issues of the Constitution and administrative law. So I'm no neutral arbiter in any of this. And and quite to be quite blunt, um, I figured all along two things would happen with this confirmation hearing. And I wrote in July about the fact that I thought that given our political moment and the seat on the Supreme Court at issue, this would literally be the most controversial or hotly contested Supreme Court nomination of our lifetimes. Even keeping in mind the Bork and Thomas uh, nominations. I thought this would actually be even uh, more politically mm. heated. And on Labor Day, it looked like I was totally wrong. Today looks like, unfortunately, we're approaching, uh, you know, being correct on that. My second view of this, and this is something I said to um, so, uh, some friends at the Weekly Standard, and you know, to I guess to to break uh, break confidentiality, John McCormick ended up tweeting an image of the email that I sent where I said the most important thing that would happen in this confirmation won't happen at the original hearing. So the Democrats' best strategy would be to save their best attack on Kavanaugh, save it for after the hearings when Susan Collins and others think the dust has settled, and then sort of deploy it right then to rattle everybody. Now, I don't know, I, I'm not presuming that that's that the Dr. Ford took that approach. I, I don't presume anything other than Dr. Ford is making her allegations in total good faith. Um, but I come to this, you know, expecting this political heat and expecting this last second sort of swerve. And when it comes, and I get into this in the piece, mm-hmm. one of the problems, the challenges in all this is Dr. Ford's allegations coming at the end of a hearing process that from its opening moments was disrupted over and over again by not just the protesters in the audience, but also the Democratic senators who tried to overpower Chairman Grassley with a tidal wave of a, a flurry of objections to now after that entire process to come to grapple with Dr. Ford's allegations is a real challenge. And I guess I'd say I'm filibustering now, but yeah. um, well, I'd, I'd say that the, the headline on the piece uh, is called the Flight 93 nomination. And this is a point I make very late in the piece where I say two years ago, we watched some of Hillary Clinton's opponents declare this presidential election as a Flight 93 election in which 
the Constitution itself was at stake, and any tactic uh, useful to stopping her election was inherently justified. And watching the Democratic's conduct up until Dr. Ford, again, I'm not roping Dr. Ford into this, but watching their conduct so far, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker mm-hmm. and, and the others, it felt like they were they and their supporters were living in the Flight 93 nomination, where they were willing right. to do literally we're anything all, to We're all going to die. Well, let's get to, uh, to to Dr. Ford and this the dueling burdens of proof because you know both sides are presenting different standards. And of course, um, if this was a criminal trial, which it is not, there would be a presumption of innocence for Judge Kavanaugh, and the burden of proof would be on the accusers. Other people say no, this is a job interview, um, and therefore any doubt cast upon the, the judge's qualifications ought to be taken into consideration. And I heard somebody say the other day that you know, if this was a criminal trial. Uh, you would have to prove somebody was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But shouldn't that also be the standard for putting somebody on the United States Supreme Court for a lifetime tenure, that their qualifications and their character should be sterling beyond a reasonable doubt? And I think you're going to see this played out over the next uh, 24, 48 hours, because no matter how compelling, I mean, again, we, we don't know, you know how compelling she will be. But Brett Kavanaugh is in the really unenviable position of trying to prove a negative. Yeah. And that that's not, that is not possible. So what is the standard that the Senate should hold um, bo- both of these individuals? What is the standard of proof? Right. In a way, what Kavanaugh finds himself defending against now is 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 it sort of echoes Kamala Harris's odd line of questioning during the first hearings where she said, you know, prove that you never spoke with lawyers I won't name at places I won't name, you know, anybody who worked for this given law firm, please prove that you've never uh, spoken to them about Mueller. It was this strange thing where Kavanaugh was left to try to deny allegations that weren't even specified. The reason why we're all talking about the burden of proof right now is because of the nature of Dr. Ford's allegations. She made her accusations, but of this thing that, you know, allegedly happened three decades ago, but without any contemporaneous evidence and without any contemporaneous witnesses who were there at the time who would support her story. Her only witnesses that, that seem to support her are witnesses who say, yes, she told us in the last three years that this happened, but nobody that actually has any real direct knowledge of what happened. And so the question is, who bears the burden of proof? Is the burden of proof on Dr. Ford to give some real evidence supporting her allegation? Or if she can't, and that thus, if she can't uh, provide that evidence, well, then uh, Kavanaugh should prevail. Or is the burden on Kavanaugh to disprove the allegations, even in the absence of direct evidence? So Republicans say, well, presumption of innocence, this is like a criminal trial, the burden of proof is on her. And then this line that you just alluded to, and we've seen it really bubble up in the last couple of days, Kavanaugh's critics saying, no, this is a job interview. There is no burden of proof. They sort of pedantically say, you know, this isn't a court of law. Well, yeah, of course we know it's not the court of law, it's the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that's the point of my piece, is that ultimately what the Senate has to think about in this context is how best to arrive at the truth of what's being alleged about Kavanaugh, while at the same time doing it in a way that preserves the Senate's truth-seeking function in the future. Well, let me, the, let, let, me, let me stop right there, because, and I think this is a legitimate question, is either side actually interested in determining what the truth is? Um, if, if, in fact, um, the Republicans were interested in the truth, wouldn't they have reopened the FBI investigation? Wouldn't they have subpoenaed other uh, <coughs> witnesses, including the one 
um, alleged eyewitness of all of this case, wouldn't they have scheduled more than one day of testimony? I, I, I'd say you can presume good faith on both sides and say, because I don't, I don't know what's in the minds of any given senators. I'd say, I'd say the best, the best explanation of the Republicans' approach is they're trying to preserve the Senate Judiciary Committee's truth-seeking function of the long run by not allowing, in this case, the creation of precedents to create incentives for every future nomination to be conducted under the cloud that at the 11th hour, after the usual FBI investigation and after the actual hearings, that after the fact, new issues are brought up sort of strategically, you know, echoing the way that Senator Feinstein had these allegations months ago and only brought them up after the fact. Now, Democrats, on the other hand, I, you know, I, I think it's perfectly fair to presume the good faith on their part, that they're, they, they're demanding uh, the Senate do everything possible to find the absolute truth as with respect to these allegations. Now, the first question is, is that ever possible, given that the, doc, that the alleged incident happened three decades ago? We don't even know what year it occurred in, what house it occurred in. There's no direct witnesses. Um, but they, they want to do whatever is possible now in this nomination to find the truth. Um, the question is, is their approach undermining the Senate's long-term ability to be a truth finder in the normal course of business? That's why I'm so skeptical and worried about their approach. And I think the better approach is the Senate's usual approach of the FBI investigation up front and the hearings and putting the burden on the nominee's critics to come forward with the evidence that might actually cast doubt on okay, but a shouldn't nomination's the, qualifications. Shouldn't, shouldn't the FBI talk to Dr. Ford? Shouldn't the FBI talk to uh, Ms. Ramirez? The reason I'm asking this is I think that there's a sense that, that reopening the background check is a gotcha to Judge Kavanaugh. But if there's a concern that people are coming forward with unfounded, unsubstantiated, uncorroborated allegations, isn't it in Judge Kavanaugh's interest to make sure that that if someone is going to make a charge, they should make it to the FBI, which, of course, raises the bar of, yeah. of credibility, but also raises the bar of you know how much skin you have in the game in terms of legal jeopardy. So I guess I'm, I'm still puzzled how the Senate preserves its the, 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 the traditions by having a one day hearing with a vote scheduled for Friday. How do Republicans escape the the impression that they have rushed and or rammed this through without engaging in the due diligence to find out what what the real story is? Well, I'd say first of all, I share your 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 sort of pre- premise that it's in Judge Kavanaugh's own interest to have this aired in in a reasonable and full way. In fact, while I was a skeptic of the allegations when they were anonymous. And I'm still skeptical of them. As soon as her name came out, I went to the great, you know, the world's great press release machine, Twitter, and hmm. I tweeted something, you know, saying, well, at this point, it's probably in Ford's interest and Kavanaugh's interest and the Senate's interest and the court's interest that there be another hearing on this. Mm-hmm. Now, on the specific question of how to involve the FBI, I think it's very hard to make that judgment in the middle of things about what to do. It's, it, it's I think it's very easy to say, well, yes, let's have the FBI question Dr. Ford and Dr. Kavanaugh. Um, and if that's all it was, if everybody was in agreement that, yeah, let's go have the FBI go question these two, and that's the end of things, um, then yeah, that could make sense. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I don't believe that it would be the end of things. I think that it would only be the beginning, because you can always say, well, now you should ask these two people. And now well, you and, ask and, and of course, Mike, Michael Avenatti is out there and who knows whether yeah. what he's saying is, is legit or not legit or whether he was hoaxed, whatever. The, the, the Avenatti 
role almost guarantees that the circus would be on would be ongoing. So yeah, I mean, the, the, your, your, your concern is absolutely right. But, you know, you know, everybody's comparing this now to the Anita Hill hearing. And I was uh, I went back this morning before we talked and was uh, listening to some things about the Anita Hill hearing and a couple of things that are quite, you know, distinct and why tomorrow will not be like that. They had multiple days of hearings. They did yes. reopen the FBI investigation. And then there was also the overlay of race and uh, J- Justice, uh, now Justice uh, Cl- Clarence Thomas's really powerful, angry pushback against these allegations. I mean, it is worth looking at. Uh, One reporter described it as that he looked like he was sweating anger. And he played the race card, calling this a a high-tech lynching. Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh is not going to have the ability to to do that. And the truth-seeking... I don't know, you know, whether there is any truth seeking. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more cynical than you are, Adam, about all of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to attribute bad faith to everybody, but that's uh-huh. that's just me in this particular case. Um, you, you, you don't have the multiple day hearing. I wonder what you think about the the decision to schedule a committee vote for Friday morning. Um, I mean that that seems to really raise a question mark over over whether or not people are really going to pay attention to what happens tomorrow. Yeah, I, well, that's that. That is a very fair point. I do think, on the one hand, preemptively announcing the vote for the next day, um, you know, I, I think it would be a mistake for the Senate Judiciary Committee to commit to that. Uh, on the other hand, where we've already seen the Senate Judiciary Committee lay down deadlines and then move them, my hope is that they've scheduled this vote, um, but that they remain they retain their full flexibility to change the date as circumstances warrant. I, I, I think that's uh, that is the case. I really got the sense, though, that in every single day, it, it seems that there is a, a new storyline or a shift in the current. So, you know, uh, at the beginning of the week when these out and, and when the beginning of this process over the last two weeks, when when the allegations first came out, I, I think a lot of Republicans were rattled about it. But I sensed a real change in mood when the New Yorker published that extraordinary, and I'm going to put in extraordinarily reckless article about Ms. Ramirez, um, and, and even though the Ronan Farrow had, I think, established a pretty good track record with the Me Too stories, but those stories all had multiple incidents, multiple on-the-record um, yeah. you know, evidence, uh, and, 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 and very substantial corroboration. And then you come out with the story of the woman whose memory was so foggy that she needed six days in order to decide that it was Brett Kavanaugh. The New York Times reports that they interviewed dozens of people were unable to corroborate it. I have a hard time imagining this being published by any reputable journalistic outlet in a different circumstance. And so I don't know whether you're picking up the same thing, but but the that uh, among Kavanaugh supporters, among conservatives, even anti-Trump conservatives, real anger and pushback as a result of this, the sense that this is, in fact, um, a, a gotcha, a smear attempt. Yeah, the, the the stark difference in Pharaoh's approach and standards and the other articles, now this one, it really jumps out at you. We keep referring to it as the Ronan Farrow article, but it's important to point out that he has a co-author on these new articles. It's Jane Mayer of the New York Times, who uh, was in, we keep referring to Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. She was one of the most aggressive and I think biased and tendentious reporters uh, covering the, the Hill Thomas hearings. And she she and Jill Abramson later, mm-hmm. later wrote a book called Strange Justice. Um, when I 
wrote two years ago, looking back at the anniversary of the Thomas Hill hearings, I pointed out that actually the real strange injustice was the injustice, the journalistic injustices that Jane Mayer and Jill Abramson perpetrated against uh, Clarence Thomas. And so seeing her co-byline these pieces, I think is the first hint that this is a different, this is a very different endeavor. Um, in terms of the mood, I, you know, I've, I've been a little busy this week with um, some, some things at, at the law school and haven't had a chance to keep up with either Kavanaugh's TV interview or the political um, mood. I will say it'll be very interesting to see if Ford testifies how she performs. We have no idea how either right. she or Kavanaugh will be, how compelling they'll be. And I think we ought to keep an open mind about this. But I, I would also say that stepping aside from Ford, I'd say Kavanaugh's opponents, strategically thinking, their best approach would be to keep Ford from testifying. Um, and then a day after the hearing, but before the vote, the Senate committee vote, then deploy new allegations. And I think their best play strategically, and again, this isn't Ford, this is you know, opponents of Kavanaugh's nomination, their best play is to signal to Murkowski and Collins that they can do this forever, that mm -hmm. they can sort of sandbag the process and then afterwards deploy something new and call for a new investigation so it, and is new that hearings. An, but is that an argument then for Republicans to accelerate the process, which seems to be, you know, sort of stepping into what could be a long-term problem? And the, in, in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you, because you think about this all the time and you've written about this for years, are you at all concerned that you know, let's whatever you think about Brett Kavanaugh as, as, as a man of honor being falsely accused, are you concerned that this casts a shadow over the Supreme Court as an institution or uh, a shadow over the cases that he may be the decisive vote on in, in the future? Is there a concern that that maybe conservatives might be better off with somebody untainted? So hard to say in the middle of mm -hmm. things. I think my answer is no. I'd say that this doesn't cast a shadow over the court, but rather uh, politics in general has cast a shadow over the court, in, in part because the court has cast its long shadow over politics for a long time. Um, I'd say Scalia made this point in his dissent in Planned Parenthood v. Casey that the confirmation fights would remain explosive so long as the court made huge value judgments on behalf of a country. And we haven't figured out a way to get ourselves out of this. I think originalism would help minimize these problems. But the fact remains, as long as the court does what it does, you're going to have people trying to preemptively delegitimize the court or, or after the fact, delegitimize the court. And not just on the left. In the mid-1990s, First Things magazine, um, a conservative religious magazine, published a, at the time, shocking symposium declaring the Supreme Court illegitimate in the aftermath of, of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. People interested in this ought to go back and read the book version of this, which combines the, the original symposium along with responses from people like Bill Crystal mm -hmm. and David Brooks and, and, and um, Ramesh Panuru and others. We've been through this over and over again, and I'd say I don't doubt that the court's critics, and now that Kennedy isn't on the court, there'll be more and more critics on the left, will work to delegitimize the court. Um, but that's been the story of the court for decades and, and, and decades and decades before that. Uh, Adam White's uh, piece, uh, The Democrats' Flight 93 nomination, is up at the uh, Weekly Standard website. Um, Adam, and I, I think, you know, again, going back to recognizing that uh, everything we say is uh, perhaps a little bit inoperative before the, the televised uh, testimony, because everything changes once those lights go on 
and we may be living in a different world or or who knows. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much uh, on today's Daily Standard podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, the challenge for all of us is keeping an open mind about this, about, about what's to come. The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by Quip. Look, the truth is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong for not for long enough and forget to change our brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. What makes Quip so different? Well, for starters, Quip's an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just for your convenience, although they are very convenient. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. In fact, um, I'm getting on a plane in a, in a short while, and I'm just packing up my Quip, uh, Quip toothbrush because they really do travel extremely well. Look, uh, they are backed by a network of more than 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just 25 bucks, and if you go to getquip.com slash standard right now, you will get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. And as I mentioned, uh, I'm getting on a plane. I'm going down to the uh, Texas Tribune uh, Festival, which is uh, an annual event in Austin, Texas. And we will be doing the Daily Standard podcast from Austin, Texas tomorrow. In fact, uh, my special guest on tomorrow's podcast will be Rick Wilson, um, a name that I'm guessing many of you recognize as a longtime Republican activist and consultant uh, who has written a New York Times bestselling book that everything Trump touches dies. I don't think that Rick Wilson is uh, generally at a loss for words or opinions. So uh, make sure you catch our Thursday podcast. And of course, uh, tomorrow is going to be a rather extraordinary day, which we will which we will recap uh, in full on our Friday podcast. And so thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we'll be talking to you from Austin, Texas tomorrow.